0: Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Ed Davis, author of The Last Professionals. How are you doing today?
1: Deidre, I'm doing great, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you this morning.
0: Well, thank you for being on the show. Can you tell the audience a little something about how you started the project and something about yourself?
1: Sure, sure. Well, uh, I was a um, part-time hobo, I guess you'd say, from the early 1970s to the 1980s. Um, I rode partially for necessity and largely because I sort of loved it uh, when I figured out how to do it. The uh, folks are generally interested in understanding how I got started, and it's it's a quick story, but a good one. Uh, A friend of mine and I had been working at Sonoma State Hospital in uh, Northern California. It was the largest hospital for the developmentally disabled in the country at that time. We'd worked for a couple of years. Uh, Neither of us knew our fathers. Uh, My friend Paul had had a link on where I a hint about where his father might be found. And it was in an island off the coast of Scotland. So we cashed in our chips and we decided we were going to go see if we could find Paul's dad. Uh, in those days, you could buy an open ended ticket from uh, Kennedy to Heathrow for 200 bucks. So we knew we could get to the UK, but we didn't know how to get to Kennedy. So we figured we'd hitchhike. What the, You know, everyone was hitchhiking. It was the early 70s. And nobody was giving us rides. Now, of course, we're both really big guys. Paul was like 6'4", and I'm six foot. We had these great big uh, wire, you know, metal frame backpacks we'd gotten from the Army Surplus store. Nobody was stopping. Finally, somewhere up on the California coast, a fellow in a van stops, and he says, You guys are crazy. Nobody's going to pick you up. You should be riding freight trains. And we said, God, is that even a thing you can do? We, we simply didn't know. And he said, yeah, he'd done it. And he gave us some pointers. Uh, he dropped us off in Eugene, Oregon. And half an hour later, we were on a flat car heading north with the wind in our hair, the sun in our backs, and I was hooked. Now, tell the
0: audience a little something about your main character, Lyndon.
1: Uh, well, yeah, Lyndon's the protagonist. And uh, he's a young man who um, ha- has not known his father. Um, and he's very successful as a young programmer in what is the burgeoning uh, Silicon Valley in the 1980s. And he, dis- he he finds that he can't move forward with his life without confronting the traumas of his past. Um, as a boy, he was abducted uh, by a tramp and molested by him and then let go. And so Lyndon decides that he's going to return to the rails and figures out that he needs to come to grips with what's happened to him. And I make peace with it, confront it. Um, So he gets a big promotion at work and instead of taking the promotion, uh, he heads for the nearest freight yard.
0: Now, how do you introduce trauma into your story?
1: Uh, Well, that's a great question. Um, I think it happens early. Um, one of the things I've learned, I've been writing for gosh 40 years, is that you've got to give the reader um, they've they've got to have a stake in the story and the characters early on. And so, in this particular case, the first time Lyndon catches a train, um, he is transported mentally back to those earlier experiences, and. He's, you know, as so many of us have with trauma in our lives, we convince ourselves we've made peace with them. Um, You know, we push through, we decide that that's the past and we don't need to deal with it. And so he um, he is discovering he can't do that. And so he basically gets to revisit not in a great deal of detail uh, those earlier traumas. The first time he's on a train because it snaps him back to 15 years earlier. When he was abducted by this tramp.
0: Now you have sexual harassment in the work environment. How did you frame this issue in, in your book?
1: Oh well, that's a that's a good question. Um, Lyndon is uh, finds himself, and I and again, I think this may be a thing that repeats in life frequently for people. Um, he he has a new supervisor. He's a vice president of the company, and the fellow is a sexual predator. And so he's given Lyndon this big promotion, and yet he is making it clear that along with the promotion comes implicit permission for him to do whatever he wants. And so that puts Lyndon right back in this spot he was at as an eleven-year-old, where he was powerless, um, and. So, yeah, that's, that's how it's introduced in, to Lyndon as a young man rather than a boy.
0: Now, when he goes to ride the rails, how important was meeting this man that he met?
1: Oh, it, it's central. Um, he meets, the first time he gets on a train uh, after he's quit uh, his job, he gets into a box car and discovers that there's someone in there already. And the fellow who's there is an old hobo who goes by the moniker of the Duke. And the Duke, as it happens, is also confronting, um, well, confronting his past in a way he is clinging to his vanishing way of life. Uh, and this is probably a good place to talk a little bit about hobos and their culture and the different types. Um, as, as, I, I think many people know, during the Great Depression, there were hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people riding the rails. Most of them did it as a way just to get to work. Um, you know The country was a mess, too many mouths to feed at home, uh, places being foreclosed on by the bank. And here you could walk you know, half a dozen miles from your front door, catch a train, and it would take you literally anywhere. It, it was kind of like the equivalent of the modern day internet. Um, it abolished time and distance. And so people took to the rails in huge numbers. The the traditional definitions of those who rode were hobos worked and wandered. They were essentially migrant workers using the rails to get from place to place so they could make, you know, make some money. Uh, Tramps just wandered and bums didn't either. That was the traditional definitions. But among hobos, there was a hierarchy. And some people, uh, the Duke is one in this story, find that something about the act of writing, about the freedom uh, and the relationship with the land and with themselves uh, feeds their soul in a way that nothing else does. So these fellows, um, they writing was an avocation they did it because it was a passion. They did it because they needed to. They were called professional hobos or profesh. And the Duke in this story is the last of them. Uh, and he is discovering that an old, his past is catching up with him, an old nemesis, a, a fellow named Short Arm, is out to kill him.
0: Now, you talk about the culture there. Uh One quote, and I want you to talk about this a little. These freights don't let us go. What's the meaning of that phrase?
1: Well, I think you'll find it... um, I'll speak from personal experience. I haven't ridden a freight train in 25 years, uh, but I did it as a passion. Yet, any time I hear a whistle in the distance... There's a piece of me that wants to uh, wants to go catch that train. So it gets in your blood and it's a little bit like, um, you know, think of the marathon runners who run 50 marathons a year or the guys and uh, men and women who hike the Appalachian trail every year because it's passion or the fellows out in California, We have people who will surf every day, year in and year out, regardless of how good the surf is. It's something that they seem to need to do. It's a part of their identity. And so that's what, you know, these freights let you ride. They don't let you go. Once it gets under your skin, um, it's hard to, um, it, it doesn't let you go.
0: Now, one of the things I thought was really interesting, you had different signs. The hobos had different signs telling them some things. Can you tell the audience about those signs?
1: Oh, absolutely. The the hobo writing and iconography uh, is really well documented. And these guys had their own society. They had their own language. But part of it is they had their own symbology so they could communicate with one another. Um, and they did it for a number of reasons. The ones that people are most familiar with are, uh, you know, a hobo would come into a town and would um, go ask for work at the a back stoop of somebody's house. And if the folks who own the house said, yeah, you know, you can rake the leaves, you can chop the wood and we'll give you some uh, give you a meal. A hobo would make a mark on the gatepost or on the gate or somewhere near that house so that others who followed would know that, yeah, these people uh, will treat you okay. On the other hand, if there was a mean dog tied up in the backyard or if you'd get into a town and the sheriff uh, was uh, the, the kind who would run hobos out, and boy, was there a lot of that, again, those symbols would uh, give the next fellow coming through a chance to understand and, you know, avoid getting jailed, avoid getting bumped on the head and hopefully get something to eat.
0: Now I I was wondering, was the Duke really trying to protect Lyndon?
1: Well, that's a great question. And in the beginning, I think, I think perhaps not, but as they get to know each other, um, and I I think the Duke sees in Lyndon. um, his legacy. I think he understands that, you know, (laughs) don't all of us want something of who we are to survive, uh, after we're gone. And maybe it's our, our family for most folks, our children, our grandchildren. Um, maybe it's the things that we've accomplished, the, the friends we've made. Here's the Duke, a man who's lived an an isolated life essentially. Um, Mm moving around the country, surrendering to Wanderlust, uh, being the last of his kind to do this. And he sees something in Lyndon and this young man that uh, he recognizes some of himself in him. And so I think it, your question is a good one. In the beginning, I think probably not. I think the I think the Duke was just scared. Uh, but I think as the book goes on, he really uh, becomes he, – he comes to – view this young man as a son he probably never had.
0: Now, I thought the names of the men who ride the rails were interesting. Can you tell us more about Short Arm uh, and Trainer? How, sure. how, how did they get those names? What, what's well,
1: the- that, that's that, that's a great question. Um, everybody who rode more than a little bit ended up with what's called a moniker. Um, and it would often be something about a physical uh, characteristic, you know, so, uh, Ginger Brown would be a guy with red hair. Uh, there was a famous hobo called Montana Blackie who lived in Sacramento. He was from Montana. Uh, in the book, there's a fellow named step down Johnny. He's called that because he's had an injured hip and he can't jump down from a boxcar anymore. He steps down short arm is called short arm because he's lost an arm under a train. Um, trainer is always has a a pet of some kind with them. And so that's everybody who rode again, more than just a few times ended up with a moniker of some sort.
0: Now, I I thought the campfires were interesting. Can you tell us the importance of campfires?
1: Oh, absolutely. The, The hobo jungles basically were ubiquitous around the country. Um, It's hard for us to to understand now that there was a time when 90 percent of the population in this country lived within five miles of a railroad track. Uh, You know, this would have been in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The trains ran on steam. They had to stop for fuel and had to stop for water. So every little town had a water station and in almost every town that had a water tank, down by the water tank or down by the creek next to the yard would be a hobo jungle. And these were places that had, uh, they'd often have tin cans washed and uh, put upside down on tree branches so guys could cook out of them. They'd have a mirror hung up in a tree and maybe a razor. Um, And there was a real... A code involved about how you behaved in a jungle. When you got there, if you had food, you shared it. Uh, if you didn't, you would go out and work with the other hobos who were there, go to town, somebody go for potatoes, somebody go for cabbage, somebody go for beef, you bring it back and cook it up and share with whoever else came. So they were sort of like youth hostels, I guess you could say. Uh, except they were really all over the country. So the professional hobos could go from coast to coast in three days with no luggage and no food because they knew how the trains ran and they knew where the good jungles were where they could get a bite to eat and could keep moving.
0: Now, I thought this was interesting, catching the Amtrak train versus the freight train. What's the difference
1: in terms of techniques? Oh, boy. Well, it's huge now. Uh, and this is probably the best time for my public service portion of this uh, interview. Catching trains is really dangerous. Not only that, it's illegal. Um, and so please, to whomever is hearing this or who reads the book, don't try it. Um, in the old days, those days when there were jungles in every little town, the trains move slower boxcar car doors were open. Um, it was it was easier, but still amazingly dangerous. I think in two between two thousand, pardon me, between nineteen oh five and nineteen oh nine, I'm pulling this up from memory. I think twenty four thousand people died catching trains. It was it was a, terribly dangerous. What's different now? One of the things that's different is that when passenger trains were ubiquitous, you know, you could get anywhere in this country on a passenger train, the, There was an area you could ride on the outside of the mail car that was a door that had a little ledge under it. It was called the blind baggage. So you could catch a passenger train and you could sit in that blind and you could ride pretty comfortably. Those are all gone. There is no such thing now. So if one is going to catch a streamliner, as they're called, uh, the only place to ride for any length of time is on the top. And that is amazingly dangerous. There's very little to hang on to. They're very slick. They go really fast. So, again, I would not recommend anyone try this.
0: Now, in your book, Duke realizes that the life of the hobo was changing. When did he realize this?
1: Well, I think he comes to grips with it in an interesting way. Um, When uh, he and Lyndon get to Denver, and he's finding himself standing in front of the Denver Union Station, which is a beautiful station, by the way. I'm actually going to be uh, staying there. They, ha- they have a hotel in it now, if you could believe that. Um, but he has these memories of what it was and what Denver was. And it was sort of a hobo mecca there in Chicago. There were two or three places around the country where the subculture really came together. And he finds himself standing in front of the Union Station, looking at it and understanding that in seeing it, he is reflecting on how old he has gotten and how much things have changed.
0: Now, if there was one message that you want your reader to get from reading this book,
1: what would it be? Oh, boy. Um, Well, I think that the best fiction really asks us to reflect on who we are, on how we fit in, and on where we belong. And I think that hopefully readers will look at these two characters who are struggling with those exact things and have a chance maybe to reflect for themselves on... uh, You know, just as Lyndon was going through the steps of daily life, he was rising on the career ladder. He was very, you know, very successful. But was that really who he was? Was that where he belonged? Was that how he fit in? And I think the Duke knows that. He knows who he was. He knows where he fits in, but the place he fits in is disappearing. So if there's a message to the reader, it's, this is a chance to reflect on our own lives about uh, how do we fit in? Where do we belong? Uh, who who are we?
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you're working on?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I've, I finished a long novel uh, called Four in Stone that's based in a small agricultural town in Northern California. That's about four friends who meet early in high school. And it, it's John Steinbeck's kind of a touchstone for me. And it, if you were to look for a similarity, it would probably be East of Eden. It's that kind of a book. Uh, and then I've also written and published uh, a number of short stories, again, about this same town, and I'm collecting them into a short story collection.
0: Wow, we'll be looking forward to reading those. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: It's been a delight. Thank you.